Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. This week I have renowned wildlife street artist Mark Anthony, aka ATM, who has produced dozens of pieces of art around the UK to highlight endangered species. If you can, there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com and you can help out the podcast by donating £3 to help keep it going. If you could also leave a review, that really, really helps the podcast out. In today's chat, we talk about his process for painting the animals, how he chooses which birds to paint, and where it all started for him. Here's our chat. Well, thanks for joining me, Mark. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. No, I, we were just saying it. I, I'm keen to get more artists on because I think they've got a kind of unique perspective of the natural world and maybe not so clinical as some of the scientists and other people that I have on here. So it'd be great to get some of your views and particularly hear a little bit about your uh, your street art. But the, the first thing I want to ask you is, is what does ATM stand for? Because I had a look online and thought, what does that mean? And I'm trying to work it out. So is, is it a secret or can, can we find out? Well, it does mean a lot of different things depending on where you're coming from. So, yeah, I mean, that, that was part of the humour of it as well. But originally, I and, a, well, the three of us, were, it was about 20 years ago, we were really kind of outraged the fact that street art was becoming very commercialised. It was becoming a product. Yeah, Banksy opened that shop in <laughs> Oxford Street. What was it called? Uh, Santa's... Santa's ghetto Santa's grotto yeah that was it yeah you know, where it started selling because the whole point of street art in a way was that it couldn't be commercialized it couldn't be taken away and put in a gallery or carried off by somebody it just existed in in the environment so it didn't have a price on it you know that's that's one of the appeals of it and as soon as it becomes a commercial product and then it starts getting used by advertising and 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 the potential for that kind of radical stuff to seem trendy and it and then but then it's as so often happens then those things are kind of subverted by the big commercial interests and they just become a kind of a cool thing so people put some street art on, on their wall and they might well be um you know a kind of affluent banker but it makes them feel cool so it takes it takes some of the energy away from it and so some of the kind of the, it's the grass the thing i like about street art it's the kind of grassroots aspects of it that it it cuts across class boundaries that you know status boundaries it's available to everyone people who don't go into art galleries so you don't have to go anywhere it's there and that's what I like about it so yeah to get back to your question we were ATM was and it was a it was a play on the ATM machine the cash machine dispensing um cash right turning turning this kind of movement into um commercial interest and and we called ourselves anarchist troublemakers so we kind of was trying we were doing graffiti and stuff so trying to subvert that and trying to point out that you know radical social movements or political movements or whatever as soon as they start kind of becoming commercial they they can often get sidetracked and lose lose the the original motives for doing it so that, yeah that was, that was where it came from Right. Okay. I, I remember watching a, um, a documentary about Banks, and he was saying originally that he he was selling his art. It might have been in Santa's Grotto, whatever it's called, but it was relatively cheap, like 20, 20 quid a pop or whatever. But then people was then reselling it for silly amounts, and that's one of the things that prompted him 
to raise his prices just so that other people i mean that's why he's i'm assuming that's why he said it but like because other people were profiting off it anyway thought well i might as well uh get it or something along those lines anyway yeah but yeah but i mean i mean there, there's other sides to it as well because obviously street art it's hard to make money out of it in itself so artists make money from prints limited yeah. edition you know it did you know there are there are which enables the street art to continue so yeah there, there are ways but it was just it just seemed um well it, it was a bit like the punk movement you know it when it first started it has an energy you know it's people doing things for for their own sake for the inherent value of why they're doing them you know uh, it, that was like the antithesis to the big stadium rock bands you know it was like yeah. people learning to play actually half the time while they were on stage and um you know you could see them develop but it was just ordinary people and i, I, I like that the fact that uh, anybody could do it you weren't dependent on huge infrastructure and it's a bit like the same same thing with the street art you know people anybody could just go and do it and uh and, uh, and that was that was the kind of the energy of it which i which I'd, i still i still like that yeah yeah no definitely and of course you're combining that with a love of of natural history and nature and, and wildlife and whatnot so i wondered what's been your kind of lockdown uh, escape why this has all been going on do you do you bird watch do you go out and, and and enjoy nature in that way or is it more kind of with a with a kind of paint or, or a paintbrush getting out there you prefer to do it oh, i've been walking a lot during the lockdown so i've been yeah uh, and um basically seeing um seeing the nice places what um whatever i can find really on foot i mean i walk anyway i like walking a lot anyway so it's not that it's not been that different for me it's just that what i've really missed is going um traveling around the country and uh, doing different things you know so so it's been more lo- more, more local stuff are you, are you near any of the parks? Are you near any of the London parks? Yeah, I can I can watch the Richmond Park, which is fantastic. And oh, brilliant! In the, yeah. In the first lockdown, there was no cars, no cyclists, and no planes overhead because it's the Heathrow flight path, and there's you know normally there's planes going over every every two minutes. It was silent and beautiful. You could hear hear the birds singing, you could hear the skylarks singing, and it was it was really special. Yeah, that was really. I mean, they've, unfortunately, they, they've allowed cars back. I mean, there's, there's been a campaign to ban cars from Richmond Park for, for years, and it's so, you realise how beautiful it, I mean, it's a beautiful place, but even more so with, without cars. Yeah, I've only, I only went once years ago for the, because it's one of the the kind of premier places for the stag route, isn't it? You get like photographers from all over the, the bloody place going to go photograph them. But um, I did go and it was amazing. The, the light was phenomenal, like early morning. I think because it's kind of higher up, you get a good sunrise normally, and the light was just golden and absolutely beautiful the sound of parakeets going overhead it is uh it's a unique place it's it's, ma- it's magical with the yeah the old ancient oak trees as well you know it really takes you back in time i love it yeah. it's phenomenal isn't it uh, and so where did street art start for you then because obviously it's not something you've just taken up is it i'm assuming no no i mean like i said we were, i was doing the, i was doing graffiti and stencils and things and i've always painted um so i've painted on canvas and stuff like that and then i was doing some voluntary work here in acton where i live with a local a local arts community group who were doing lots of things to try and um improve the life of residents on the south acton estate it was like a big sprawling neglected estate and uh, we just, again, it was people I was collaborating with, work, been working with for years. We got the opportunity to do some uh, lo- local art, you know, in, with the residents and um, 
so there was there was some people who were doing some mosaic and I, I I was doing paintings and we and we got yeah I got the opportunity to do these walls and um and then and then I I mean it was interesting really I, I decided to paint a big bird there was a snipe that I painted and I painted it on Bollerbridge Road because there's actually a river flowing under that under the tarmac now it's all hidden you know like so many um streams and rivers in towns and cities to underground yeah. yeah London's got a lot of lost rivers hasn't it yeah yeah, and it, obviously it was a place where Snipe used to live, so I thought it's a perfect, uh, perfect spot for that. And I was very surprised when I did the painting that how quickly I could do it on a large scale. It's paradoxical, really, but I can I can paint faster than I can paint doing a small small piece on a canvas. Really. So how long did did it take you to do that? I think I can picture in my head that what you're talking about. How how long did it take you to make that or paint it? I should it, say that was two or three days. Uh, okay. Yeah. So not, I guess if it's bigger, because something small is quite intricate, I guess, whereas if it's bigger, it's a little bit easier. I'm, I'm not an artist whatsoever, but I'm guessing it's easier if it's bigger. Yeah, with something small, there's less, there's less margin for error. You know, you've got, you know, everything has to be precise and it's exact. Something a tiny bit out will look really wrong, whereas it's much freer on a large scale. You, you've got more, yeah, you've got, and, it, and it's more physical as well, so. I'm actually using my whole body to paint and moving around and <laughs> good exercise. <laughs> really good exercise as well. It's the whole process is great. And and also you know you're outside so there's lots of people asking saying oh, why what's that why are you painting that. Oh so it's not like you've not got a curtain around you or anything like while you're doing it people can see what you're doing like they'll come and say oh you know what you're up to oh, sort yeah. of thing. Oh that's good. That's quite nice and inclusive then I guess isn't it? Oh yeah, well, because that was a ground level, you know, quite a lot of them are a ground level. So yeah, people walking past all the time, you know, making comments or asking questions. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it can actually get too much that to, to the extent where I haven't got, you know, I'm not painting. So if I'm if I'm up a ladder or up, up scaffolding, it's it can sometimes be easier. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, cool. So so what's your process then when you um because I, mean, I guess that instant they asked you to do that. I mean, is it normally that someone will come to you and say we we'd like a a bird here or, or is it sometimes a case of uh putting a black mask on and, <laughs> and delving into the night to go and paint a bird on the side of a building i don't paint the birds at night because no okay <laughs> i paint i use because uh, uh, they're all done by eye and i won't be able to see i won't be able to see the colors no and, okay uh, you know, and it takes several days it's not something you can really just yeah you can't it's not something you can creep up in the dead of night and do without being noticed so no fair enough yeah, so they are the the big bird paintings are, are nearly always got permission, unless the you know some of them being very isolated places where it's not not so necessary. But yeah, fair enough. And and how do you pick the species? Because obviously, there's so I know you you tend to lean towards more endangered species to try and give them a bit more of a a profile. But what what's the process for picking species? Why why go for one or other? Is it is it site specific, like you mentioned with the snipe, or what what goes in yeah, your head? I, I always... I always aim to make it site specific. You know, I, I like that idea of a local connection because a lot with a lot of um, natural history, conservation and stuff, you know, the, the problem can often be perceived as being somewhere else, you know, whether it's elephants, you know, in different African countries or whatever, or tigers in India, it seems very far away. It's quite distant and uh, people don't realize how what a nature depleted country this is. You know, it's one of the worst in the world in terms of disappearance of na native creatures. So um, I, I want to make that point really of what used to live here. So I often paint, yeah, like 
like on that road where I did the snipe, I did, also did a grey partridge in a barn owl. Which, um, you know, looking at old paintings of Acton when Acton wasn't part, wasn't actually London. It was, you know, like it was a village on the outskirts of London, not that long ago. And um, yeah, there was little orchards and um, market gardens and hedgerows, and and, and there were all those birds would have lived there then. It, would, it was, an, and you know, they, I think they could they could still do so. You know, in a lot of places, it's just um, that modern farming and modern urban planning doesn't. Um, doesn't consider any of that whatsoever. So there's no space, there's no space for those uh, birds to live. Uh, but it doesn't have to be like that, I don't think. No, but it always, I mean, we mentioned the London parks earlier, but it always surprises me. Like, I mean, so Richmond Park, I think it's got little owls, hasn't it? And yeah. and it did have hares. I don't know if it still does. Does it still have hares? I don't know about that. I don't know, yeah, I think, I think at one point, and it might not now, but I know until recently it did, so a lot of these parks, you know, in the in the middle of this urban safari, have got animals that people just wouldn't even consider. And 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 you know, to a lesser extent, you mentioned places on the outskirts of London as well. There'll be wildlife there that people maybe just aren't aware or or were there until recently, but all too quickly we forget, unfortunately. Yeah, and like kestrels, for example. Every time I go to Richmond Park, there's kestrels, and there's something you don't really see that that often, simply because. Um, and they were very common, you know, where, where I grew up, and they were just not. It was normal to see kestrels all over the place, but now it's quite unusual. They have, obviously, they need certain habitat where they can hunt foals, and and uh, that's just gone in a lot of places. So, yeah, it's. It, it, I find it so strange that these these birds that were so common have suddenly become quite rare in a lot of cases. It's amazing, isn't it, with some of those? I mean, the, the one that stands out to me, and I didn't know till, um, till recently talking to uh, David Lindo, you know, the urban, urban birder, yeah. and he mentioned about the, uh, is it the carrier pigeon? There's a, there's a pigeon in, in America that was so common. I think it was the most oh, common, passenger. passenger, passenger. sorry. That's the one, that's the one. And it was oh, so yeah. common, it, like, black, it would blacken the sky and all, all these anecdotal reports of that. And we wiped them yeah. out. And it's crazy, absolutely crazy. So... Never take there for granted flocks. the common things. There were flocks, yeah, hundreds of miles long, weren't they? It took yeah. days to go yeah. ahead. Bonkers, and they, isn't it? And they, and they would stand beneath the flocks and shoot and hundreds would fall down. They actually used passenger pigeons as a staple diet for the slaves. Is that right? Uh, oh, it's crazy, yeah. Common bird like that and it's just... It was mass, it was mass slaughter. Yeah, absolutely crazy, isn't it? And, and, but, and the other thing, they chopped down the forests as well. On, because uh, they they're communal species and they and they nested in vast numbers in, in forests and um, that was part of their demise that all forests were chopped down. Right. I did, yeah. So I didn't. I'd never even heard of them before. It's funny, isn't it? And then you come across these these lost uh, lost species. What what's the reaction been like for people then when they've seen? So you you've done your your, your street art. Um, do you ever kind of see what people think of it? Do you kind of hide not hide but just stand there and and see the public reaction to it? Oh yeah, people, people, you know, 99% of people really love it. Yeah, yeah, people, I mean, when I did that one, you know, those in Acton, people were shaking their hands, saying thank you. And, you know, uh, they, they value it. One, one father actually said, um, my, my son isn't, you know, it's Somali fellow said, my son isn't going to get into trouble if he's standing next to giant painting of <laughs> night. And it, it, I thought that was very, uh, very interesting though, because it says a lot about how, environment um creates behavior and that if people live 
in brutal, you know, soulless environments, they do behave in a different way than if they if they live in you know very congenial, nice, humane places. Yeah. So, that, that was a real insight, you know, and he felt he just felt that straight away. No, I, I agree definitely. I gr- I grew up on a council estate in in Nottingham, and in in our shops there was a lot of uh, trouble, I guess. So they the council uh, bought these big flower beds, and they put these big long daffodils and uh, what else did they put in like primroses because it's not cool to stand there <laughs> to stand there flowers or what they would perceive it not. So the trouble did go down. It's weird how simple things like that. Uh, can make a bit of a social difference and it looked nice as well it, it brightened the place up i mean it's just color as well i mean what, yeah. when i did the when i did the snipe i just realized that that all those blocks those council blocks on that estate they were gray or they were actually painted some horrible brown color and i was thinking why couldn't they have been painted lime green and orange and yeah pink or, you know so I, I painted the background of the snipe a nice pale pink and it's just it, that in itself you know just um just colour uh, can make a huge difference. Yeah, just pops out, doesn't it? Well, it's just nice. It's, it's yeah. just nice on the fences. I mean, I often, when I used to travel around Europe a lot, you know, I mean, I'd come back uh, to this country and I think, well, why is everything so grey and dull? And, you know, and why are the windows in houses so small? You know, like after being in Holland or whatever, they've got big windows and nice coloured buildings. And it's, I don't know, it's a strange cultural thing. It's it's a, a, I'd never thought. To, Sorry, Mark. Yeah, I never thought of that before, actually, thinking about it when I've been to places like Hungary and France and, and just, yeah, any, anywhere but the UK. It's so colourful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they're just much much more um, creative with architecture. We really seem to like the kind of the, the severe block with small windows in it in this country. And even a lot of modern architecture, you know, that you might have, you know, they, they go for the, the varied brick colours and all that, but the actual shapes of the windows and the designs are so kind of flat the kind of flat pack designs so i don't know yeah yeah i don't know why they don't like verandas and uh, no it's a weird one it is a weird one if um if you had your choice of any building that you could paint on so let's just say you've got the permission you can do it is there a building that you'd love to to do a a bit of street art on yeah i I mean there's not a, a specific no okay I mean, well it's, it so much depends on the context and uh, the shape of the wall you know what it suggests and what might work on there so but I'm, I'm always seeing gable ends you know in really good in really good positions so that you know you might be walking up a hill and there's a gable end at the top of the hill and, and something on on that would look fantastic for example so so i see that, yeah it's it's there's not a, a specific wall but it, it no okay the aspect of it and and the surround, you know, its surroundings. So I like, it's nice to have a wall with really good sight lines, so you can see it from different angles, and from, yeah, from close up, and yeah, and also what's around it too, as well. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, so so they're more, they're they're the mo- the main things really. I guess near a road potentially is good because people driving by can see it as well as well as a footpath. Oh yeah, I did a yeah, I painted a cuttlefish um, down in Portsmouth for. Um, um secrets of the soul and, and uh, there's a campaign for living seas and and that was on the main road going to the the, the isle of white ferry so you'd get uh, traffic and <laughs> they'd have to stop and look at the cuttlefish so that was that was perfect <laughs> full <Four> star <laughs> yeah, 
didn't have any choice. Yeah, and that, that segues nicely to, to my last question, which is although birds take up most of your work, you have done lots of other animals as well, haven't you? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've painted quite a few insects recently, which, uh, which I really want to do more of because they're often kind of, they're not taken seriously maybe their needs, but they're the foundation for, for everything else really, you know, they, they're the, you know, they, you know, yeah, the birds and the mammals and all that depending on healthy insect populations. And as insects are disappearing so quickly in so many places, it's really important to focus on them and their habitats and uh, the, you know, the way we treat them because all the overuse of pesticides in farming and in gardens is, is a real disaster. So, so if people, re I mean, I think often people don't realize when they're using uh, aphid sprays or weed killers in their, on their lawns or whatever, on, and their roses, they don't realize they're killing the food supply of the little birds that they lament the loss of. So those things, those connections have to be made. And insects are fascinating and uh, incredible and beautiful as well in their own right. So it's quite a nice juxtaposition, I guess, as well. If you've got like a an insect that's only a centimetre long, and then you're painting it, you know, <laughs> twenty foot by twenty foot or whatever. It's because yeah. how how many people are going to stand and look at a I don't know a, a ladybird for any amount of time, but then when they see it that big, they're like, wow, actually, maybe I should take more time to uh, have yeah. a look at that. Exactly. When you and doing drawings of them and studying them, you know, I did this Norfolk Walker dragonfly down in Lowestoft, and you realise how what incredible beings they are, the way they're, they're put together, their construction as well. It's so, almost mechanical, isn't it? Yeah, they're just fantastic things. Yeah. And yeah, I painted. I also um, painted some fish recently as well down at Palmer's Green. I did a whole underwater. Um, kind of river scene so that was not that was really interesting is that the pike you did yeah i did a pike yeah i've seen that yeah 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 i'm a bit biased but yeah i really like that i always think pike lend themselves very well to art just because of their shape and the vivid patterns along them no absolutely it's like I've, i was i've been dreaming of painting a pike for for ages because simply because of like what you said the shape the form of them and the the the, the patterns and the colors and and, the, and there's lots of variation, so there's lots of potential to paint more pike in slightly different ways. Yeah, you should definitely do a grayling at some point. They are their their dorsal fin is phenomenal. They've got like mauves and yeah. kingfisher blues and reds. They're just like like a painter's palette in themselves. Beautiful fish. Wow. Yeah. No. No. Definitely. I'll definitely uh, yeah. do one. I'll have to. I'll have to nudge some of the fish uh, charities to um, get you to do oh, something. Yeah. Oh, is that... please do! No, I've looked at. I mean, the fish are just, you know, yeah, the colours and the and the the sheen and the shimmer and the shape of them. There's huge potential there for for big paintings, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds good to me. But look, it's fascinating to hear it all because I say we don't really get many artists on this, and I, and I do aim to get more on to talk about it. So it's interesting to see how you how you do this take on these fantastic species. So thanks for joining me, Mark. Oh, thanks so much. Cheers. Take care. Bye. That was ATM. If you haven't already, do check out his work. It's absolutely stunning and worth a good look. You have to respect the talent and skill that goes into these pieces of art. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at TitBearded and there's now a Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. Next week, I'm joined by fellow fish fanatic Helen Scales, who is a marine biologist, writer and broadcaster. And I pose the question... 
Why are fish just awesome? We cover deep sea species that are the subject of a recent book, why people should care about fish, and the bizarre habits of the pearl fish, which like to hang out in sea cucumbers' arses. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.